I also do not have a team that I am rooting for today uh, because I am a Dallas Cowboy fan and it makes every February really uh, just a lot less stressful. It's kind of like being a Blazer fan if you've grown up here in Oregon. Uh, And I'm not just wearing the jacket because there's a game today. Uh, This jacket was purchased for me by some people in our church uh, because I had simply posted a picture of it. It was at Goodwill. Who would give this to Goodwill? A fed up cowboy fan, I guess. Uh, Nobody gives their Patriot stuff away. Uh, But it was at Goodwill and I posted a picture of it on Facebook and said, if you're looking to buy me a Christmas present, this would be great. And I was totally kidding. But it showed up at my door about 10 minutes later. Uh, Somebody had seen my Facebook post, gone out, purchased it, and then brought it to me. And it was a touching moment for me. I know it's just a jacket, but it was like these people didn't have to do that, but they just willingly chose to spend their money. I think it was like a $40 or $50 Goodwill thing, too. It was not a cheap jacket. Uh, They spent their money. They came over. They gave me something out of the goodness of their hearts. It was nice of them. Um, And I think of other examples in my life where, where people do something for me that they just had you know, no good reason to do for me. At a, in a very difficult time in life, uh, another person in this church, because it was so difficult I couldn't sleep, uh, they just came over and they slept on my couch and we fell asleep watching movies together so that Bryn could stay sleeping upstairs because she had to work the next day. And, and that, that person, that man, uh, fell asleep just on my couch because he was willing to come over at 1.30 in the morning or something. Uh, and spend the night with a guy who was struggling mentally, to be honest with you, uh, and spiritually, and just stayed there all night. And I think, that's incredible. And that person and I will forever, we will forever be bonded in a deeper way because he, uh, nothing I did to bond us, because he was willing just to sacrifice uh, for, for me. And Think of uh, pretty early at this church when I uh, had started here. We had uh, a friend who needed a place to stay. Matt and I, who's in the back, uh, uh, were roommates, and another person needed a place to stay, and and we told him he could stay with us, and he had no money, and we barely had money. Uh, we had a place to stay, and there's like, there's no way that we can buy you food. Like, we can't afford for you to eat here, too, and it's like, well, what's going to happen? We're not going to make him starve, but then we're going to starve if he eats our food, and uh, and I, I don't even know where it came from. I don't know who did it. I don't know if you still go to this church or if you people still go to this church, but all of a sudden, our church had a box of food. And so we all of a sudden had food to give him because it showed him. He, I don't think it ever one time attended our, our church before. It's just people knew that we had let him move in and, and somebody stepped up to the plate and provided for his plate. Uh, pun not intended. And I think back and it's always, it always, I tell that story a lot actually because it's always endured me, endeared me to our church. It's always endeared me to our church. Uh, I have no idea who did it, but somebody was willing to sacrifice even though they didn't have to. I never knew who it was. I never knew if it was a group of people who brought that food and it's always just made me more connected. And when we experience people sacrificially doing something for us it's kind of incredible. 
It's, it's like something we always remember. And we don't, as human beings, remember a lot, if you think about it. I mean, what were you doing, you know, a year ago today? Unless you posted it on Facebook and it told you this morning, then you don't remember what you were doing. But we do remember those moments when people sacrifice for us, when they do something for us. That, that This is especially the, the, the key, when it's something that they didn't have to do at all. When like our parents do something for us, a lot of times it's just less impactful because, and I don't think this way, but, but in our heads it's like that's what they're supposed to do, they're our parents. But when it's somebody just that, that's like that you don't know or that you barely know or a friend that didn't need to or whatever and, and then they just do something to help you or to, to, to help you get by or to uh, show you that they love you or to provide for you, then it's one of those moments in life that you never really forget, and you're always just a little more bonded with that person. Uh, I'm reading the book Unbroken right now, which I, I said this to some of the people on the band this morning. If you love America or Jesus or people or stories or books, then you should probably read it. Uh, so if you fall into one of those categories, uh, just one of those five categories, then you should probably read it. Uh, but it's this story uh, that was made into a movie by Angelina Jolie, uh, the story of Louis Zamperini. And Louis, I won't give it away, even though it's pretty famous by this point, but uh, long story story short because it is a long story it's like the guy lived four lives he he crashes uh, as a war, world war ii um he was a bomber in a, in a plane and and he crashes in the sea and they survive on a raft and then they're taken to a japanese uh camp where he's tortured and and then after a long time, and I haven't got through the whole book yet, after a long time, uh, he sees a guy that he had seen in an earlier camp that he had been in. And, and the guy had been beat so badly that he like couldn't remember things. He didn't know who people were anymore. He was, he was mentally handicapped at that point and, and he was starving to death because he wasn't getting enough food and he couldn't, his body couldn't recover. And uh, Louis, they get these Christmas boxes all of a sudden and, and Louis gives his box to this guy, and he made this comment. It was the hardest and easiest thing I've ever done. And it was such a powerful statement of, of sacrifice. Like, he had not enough food. He had dropped a 67 pounds at one point. He was five foot nine, about my height, and he dropped 67 pounds. And he gives up this box of food, and it's this stunning moment in the book. And there's this other moment in the book where this, this Japanese guard comes up to him and says, are you a Christian? And, and Louis says, yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian. And this guy, he, he gets him a tangerine, and, and he provides whatever he can for him, and he, and he beats up a guy who beat up Louis, and it's all at the risk of his life. He didn't have to do it, and it's like the two most powerful kind of parts of the whole book and there's some powerful parts because it's this picture of people being willing to sacrifice even though they didn't have to. One of the great scenes in movie history, I think, uh, is at the end of, of Armageddon when Bruce Willis have no idea what his character's name is in there. Uh, they have to decide who is going to to land on, this doesn't make it sound like a powerful scene, but who's going to uh, land on the big rock that has a word, what's it called? Asteroid that's going to hit Earth. Who has to land on it and stay on it to, to detonate the bomb so that it breaks apart and doesn't hit Earth? 
That's really like quite the, it made it sound like a terrible movie, but it's a great movie. And so uh, his, his daughter's boyfriend, if she's going to marry, uh, gets the short end of the straw. And then Bruce Willis locks him in a little vessel and, and chooses to die so that his daughter's boyfriend doesn't have to because he loves his daughter so much. And then he gives this speech that just, whoo, just knock you on your socks. You'll be crying like a baby. If you uh, need to cry, go watch Armageddon. And, and it stands out because you see this wonderful sacrifice sacrifice that somebody was willing to make that didn't have to make it. It wasn't he who drew the short end of the, of the stick or the straw. It was, it was the other guy, and he made this sacrifice anyway. And here is, let me just tell you, here is what makes Christianity such a beautiful religion. Here is why we who are Christians should be or are so passionate about Jesus. And if you're not a Christian, uh, this is a great week for you to be here because because you're like, these people love this guy who lived 2,000 years ago, and you know that doesn't make sense always, and it's like, what is that about? And, and, and this passage of scripture that we're going to look at in the book of Isaiah answers the question, and, and, and the answer is, is simply that Jesus sacrificed for us even though he didn't have to. Listen to these words beginning in Isaiah 53, 1 through 3. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hid their faces, he was despised, and he was held in low esteem." The first part that's really important is that this passage begins to describe the arm of the Lord. That's what it says, if you were paying attention. And in Isaiah 51, 9, we learn about uh, who the arm of the Lord is, and it's God himself. And in this series, we're talking about Emmanuel. We're talking about Jesus. That's the same person. And we're talking about, really, why God came to be on earth. That's what Emmanuel means, God with us. Why was it important that, that God came to earth in the form of a man that we now call Jesus. And, and if you're like a longtime Christian, maybe before this series, you were like, you're just like, well, it was important because we get to go to heaven someday. But, but in this series, I hope, I hope, if, you, if I've done a good job at all and I've, I've made these passages come alive at all, that you've seen that it, it goes way beyond, way beyond just like what happens after this life because it, we've seen these incredible things about how even now in the midst of our suffering, we can hold up Jesus as our banner and have hope and have joy despite everything that goes wrong wrong in our lives and we've seen how Jesus came so that we could be held close to God's heart and we've seen how Jesus came because uh, he wanted to express God's love to us and and we've seen these incredible things that matter now right now and in this passage we continue to see some powerful things but we must recognize that this isn't about just some guy who lived a while ago it's about the arm of the Lord. This is about God coming to be here on earth and why he did it. We see this, this crazy stuff right from the beginning of this passage. Um, it tells us that God, and just notice this, just think about this for a second. God's time on earth with us, Emmanuel, was fragile. Just think about that contradiction, right? I mean, it's seemingly contradiction. God fragile, God fragile, God fragile. Like that almost doesn't make sense to our minds. God human. 
because we know that we are fragile. We all know that, right? We've already prayed about some things this morning, and one of those things is, is our physical problems. And we know that we are fragile. And God, the God of the universe, who created all of us, who created everything, took that fragile form as a person. Isaiah declared a couple weeks ago, we saw this, that Emmanuel can be our, brand, our banner, that he can be the one that we take our pride in. No matter everything that might be wrong in our lives, we can take pride in the fact that God came to be with us, that he was a root who produced a shoot that produces fruit, that really, and this is, this is one of the great aspects of God coming to be with earth, that he produces new life in areas of our lives that at one time, or even right now, maybe for you, seem dead. Like it can't be fixed, it's broken, it's wrong, everything is messed up in this area, and God came to be with us in part so that he could bring new life into those areas. And now here, Isaiah returns to that metaphorical language and says, yeah, but when that root came, it was like a root in dry land. And when that, that shoot sprung forth, that new life, that, that very life that would bring you life, it, it was tender. It was a tender shoot. God was fragile. And we talk about it at Christmas, but I don't think it has enough of an impact on us. I mean, we, we think about this baby being born in, uh, and laid in a manger. He was either born in a cave or a place where animals were stored. And, and we think about that, this little baby being born and then laid in this manger. And, it, and we go, yeah, that's cool. But think about God. I mean, we don't make that connection. God was placed in a manger in the most fragile situation that he could have possibly placed himself in. And that's what Isaiah is getting at here. It's like, hey, I want you to know that when God arrived on the scene, he didn't arrive in some glorious, crazy, or he wouldn't for Isaiah. He won't arrive in a glorious, crazy type situation. He, he will arrive in a form that, that really could be crushed and could be ended uh, without, without much effort. And he adds to this, and this is, this is just interesting. He adds that Jesus was neither great-looking, beautiful, or glorious. It goes against all of the art that we see, where Jesus is the most handsome, buff guy with the longest, most beautiful, flowing hair uh, that you've ever seen, always with the long, flowing, almost blondish hair. You know, he's like the perfect American Jesus. Um, there's probably pictures out there. Somebody can Google it right now on their phones if you want to, of Jesus with an American flag behind him, with this beautiful blue eye staring deep into your soul. And that's how we picture him. But Isaiah says, hey, I want you to know this. When Jesus comes, he will not be beautiful or good-looking or glorious. And it's interesting because if you go through history, when Jesus was born, born into a Roman culture, a Greco-Roman culture, and the Greek people had instilled into their society this idea that to be great, you must have to be good-looking. It was a prerequisite for greatness. You're good-looking, now you can be great. But Isaiah says thousands of years, hundreds of years, anyway, before Jesus lives, Hey, I want you to know that when this guy shows up on the scene, there will be nothing about his appearance that will stand out. He won't be beautiful. He won't be handsome. He'll be a normal-looking guy. In fact, we kind of can see that because there's this story right near the end of Jesus' life where Jesus is about to be arrested, and one of his good friends, a guy named Judas, has, has betrayed him, and he, he gets the authorities and says, here's Jesus praying in this garden. Let's arrest him. And, and they show up. 
And, and Judah says, here's the sign. I'll kiss the guy that, that is the man you're supposed to arrest. That's pretty crazy because Jesus is a famous guy. And so to think about his fame, you would have been like, everybody will know who he is. But it's apparent that Jesus looked just like every other Middle Eastern guy at the time, at least similar. He was the average Middle Eastern guy. And so Judas has to go up to him specifically, knowing him better than these guards and these people who had heard him speak. And he gives him a kiss on the cheek so that they know to arrest the right guy. We don't think about that. Jesus was a normal looking person. And in fact, he was a person who knew much pain. Think about this. He was born in Nazareth. That's a town that was seen as lesser. It's kind of like Salem. I'm from the Salem area, so I can say that, right? Uh, I mean, it is a town that is just seen as, you know, like, like nothing good can come out of there. It just, it's like the poor place or the, where the disenfranchised go or, 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 you know, where they have problems and where the less religious are. Not like the, the perfect city is just made of brick, you know, that, that we know today. And, and so uh, he comes from a place that's no good. And then further than that, uh, Jesus was born to a woman that conceived him in people's minds around him out of wedlock. And we know that that's because she gave birth as a virgin. But think about the ridicule that would have come in a small town like Nazareth. I mean, especially today, it's hard for us to go back and really think in their terms. But I mean, uh, if you're older, then you could think about what that would have been like in a small church, maybe for a person. But I mean, for a first century Jewish person to, to give, to get pregnant out of wedlock. I mean, and you're walking around in this city and everybody's looking at you and then you're Jesus, you're born. And it's like, you're going to be called things and people are going to know who you are and they're going to talk bad about your mama and, and it's not going to be fun for you. And so from the time he's a little kid, he's seen as like lesser because of where he lives and, and who he grew up with, really. Joseph was not, would not have been seen as a righteous person because he did not divorce Mary. It was his obligation, something, to get rid of her, to divorce her, and he chose not to do that because an angel talked to him and he knew it was a virgin birth, but they would have just seen him as a guy who didn't follow the law, the law of God, who had rejected God. How Jesus grew up. And, and then you think of, like, Jesus as he becomes an adult. We know things about him, like he was homeless, and he was probably super dirty beyond what we can imagine in our society today. I mean, he just walked around the desert. He walked around the Middle East in the dirt and the, and the sand, and he walked from town to town preaching. And, and they didn't have showers. I'm not sure if you're aware of that. That's a later invention. And Jesus would have just been this dirty, homeless, average-looking person. Even before we get to like the suffering that we know about and we talk about in, in, the, in the Gospels where Jesus dies for us, what we'll look at in a second. I mean, his dad probably died. Some of you have lost a parent. You know the pain and the hurt that that brings and Jesus would have lived through that. It's, it's almost uh, fully accepted that his dad died before the end of Jesus' life. And you think about that pain and that suffering that he endured with that. And then his brothers just reject him. I mean, Jesus comes to expand the, the kingdom of God, to bring the kingdom of God to earth. And he's going to die for all of the sins of the world. And, and there's his brothers saying, hey, Jesus, have you gone insane what gives you the right to teach these people? Why do you think you can heal people? And his brothers reject him. His, fa his own family rejects him. And Isaiah, hundreds of years before Jesus lives, says, look, when God is born on earth, 
He's not going to be born with a silver spoon in his mouth. He's going to be born into a life that knows pain and suffering. I say this a lot. Um, It's been a little while, but I say this a lot. Sometimes, I know this isn't right, but sometimes I am more impressed with the fact that Jesus was willing to live for me than he was to die for me. And the reason for that, I think, just if I could kind of analyze myself, is that I've never died. Uh, A relatively pain-free life right now. I don't have any injuries to speak of. I don't know what it's like to be beaten. Uh, I've always wondered how well, this is weird, I've said this before. I've always wondered how well I would take a full-on punch in the face, and part of me just wants to get punched in the face someday to know. But it's not something I've ever experienced before. I've never been whipped, I've never been scorched, I've never had a crown of thorns placed into my head, and I've never been crucified. And so frankly, I, I don't know what that experience is like. But I do know what it's like to be hurt by people that you love. I know what it's like to have people that you love die. I know what it's like to be made fun of. I know what it's like to feel inadequate. I know what it's like to mess up. I know what it's like to not be successful or as successful as you'd like. I know what it's like to have people not like you. And so when I think about God coming to earth, I think sometimes I'm more drawn to these first three verses in Isaiah 53 than I am the next part because I think God is sitting up in glorious in the glorious perfection of heaven. And he looks down at humanity and he says, I love you so much that I'll come live there. I'll be made fun of and I'll go through middle school and I will have people hurt me and I will have people make fun of me and I will watch my earthly dad die and I will see my mom suffer. I'll live through that for you. Isaiah gets right to the point and says, hey, God came and he didn't just die for you. He also lived for you and it wasn't a charmed life. It was a difficult life, a more difficult life than you know. And I just want to say that's incredible grace. But it, but it gets furthered because of what Isaiah says next in verses four through six. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, Jesus lived the the life that the suffering life, the difficult life, and then at the end of the life, the suffering was magnified to infinity, really, because he paid for our sins. And we know some of the details that Isaiah describes because of what is recorded for us in the New Testament, the historical documents that record Jesus' death. And we see some of that just come out right here. I mean, people mock him, people punish him, and then he is striped wounded on his back through scourging, and then he is pierced as he is crucified for our sins. And a lot of times when we talk about this passage, when I think about this passage, and it's one of my favorite to think about when I'm taking communion, um, we talk about the brutality of Jesus' death. And we talked about that last week, and that's uh, 
an important part of Jesus' death, that it was brutal physically, that he was, as we talked about last week, both marred and disfigured. Jesus didn't just die for your sins. Jesus was disfigured for your sins, so disfigured that he became unrecognizable as a human being. That's how beat up Jesus was for you. That's how beat to shreds Jesus was for you. And sometimes when we read these verses, it's important for us to think about that and to, to focus on that. But this morning, I, I just want to think about, to focus on something else that takes place in this passage of Scripture. And, and that is this. Notice the words he took. Notice the words bore. Jesus made an active decision to die for you. And then I want you to also notice our pain, suffering, transgressions, and iniquities. One of the driving forces of this passage is that Jesus was marred and disfigured. He was crucified. He was whipped and scourged because he decided that he would do that for you. One of the driving forces is simply that Jesus, Emmanuel, God came to earth so that he could take what we deserved. And when you read this passage of scripture, it's just clear. When you read these verses, it's clear that what what Isaiah is telling us is that Jesus is going to come so that he can do something for you. This is the sacrifice that I began the sermon with. Jesus came, God came to be with us, Emmanuel existed because he sacrificed for your sins. He took the punishment that you deserved. He paid the price that you needed to pay. You see, what Isaiah gets to in in these three verses is simply that, that we are the ones that deserved all that Jesus took. We are the ones who deserve to be marred and disfigured, to be beat to shreds, to go to hell. And instead, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, made an active decision. Not something he accidentally did. And some people want you to believe that, that Jesus messed up while he was on earth. He said the wrong thing and then he was crucified. That's not the case. Because hundreds of years before, Isaiah is saying, look, here's the deal. This person who will come, we know him as the person who did come, Jesus, will make an active decision to take upon himself the very things that you deserve. You see, he had to do this because we all, like sheep, had gone astray. That's what it tells us. We've already seen in this series that, that, Jesus, that Jesus is the good shepherd and in Isaiah, it tells us that, that he is a good shepherd who wants to hold us close to his heart. He wants to hold us close like I hold Hazel as I illustrated it when I preached that passage of scripture. Like I take Hazel, my new daughter, when she's like really hurt and really crying and really upset, I take her and I just hold her close to my heart. And, and I illustrated it by saying that when I was a kid and I'd cry after baseball games, there was nothing my dad could have said that would have, would have changed how I felt, but he would just pull me in and hold me close to my heart. And I illustrated it by saying that when my dog died recently and I was crushed and I'd been crying on a, a emergency vet floor and I I lost it so bad that they had to move us down a couple of rooms that when my family came in they just held me close to their heart like literally held me close to their heart and that's the type of relationship that Jesus wants to have with us and now we come to Isaiah 53 and it says there was a problem While Jesus wants, while God wants to have that type of relationship with you, that when you're hurting and you're suffering and you're broken, he just holds you close to his heart, that that you are so deeply connected that he just has you near him all the time. While he wants that, we all, like sheep, had just wandered off. So we were no longer close to his heart. 
See, there's a problem with wandering off. It leaves us in danger, first of all. I grew up with this dog. His name was Checkers. And if any of you had the privilege of meeting my dog who just died, he was like the perfect dog. And if I believed that uh, dogs' merits for heaven or hell were based on their actions, then I have one dog to look forward to in heaven and one uh, that I won't look forward to. Uh, he, he was great. We loved him. He was nice to us. But if you would have ever come to the door during my childhood, he would have acted like he wanted to bite your head off. And then it was all a trick because you'd open the door kind of scared and then Checkers would bolt. I don't know if you've had a dog like this, but Checkers was, uh, he, he was gone. And so we would chase him down, and uh, it was like a neighborhood childhood thing for me. I mean, one time I, I leapt, and I grabbed his collar, and I kid you not, he was a Springer Spaniel, and when you, when you think of Springer Spaniel, you think kind of like a weenie dog, but Checkers was like a big old athletic Springer Spaniel, um, and, and he, I got his collar, and he just drugged me. I, finally, I had to let go because he's just going, and I'm just behind him going through Eric Meyer's grass, just bouncing up and down. Finally, I let go, and then we continued the chase until somebody bigger could get involved or whatever uh and and there was this one time in the snow where checkers got out and we think that he was disoriented because usually he just ran around and and played chase for a while but he got out in the snow and we think he just didn't know where he was uh because he was so disoriented and and he ran and where i grew up um cul-de-sac off of a busy road and, and he just ran towards this busy road and it's a long day ways down there and he he wouldn't stop and he just ran right in the middle of traffic and we were all coming behind him and my uncle not the smartest move that he's ever made but one of the great sacrificial moves he's ever made he jumped out in front of traffic and almost got himself hit in the snow uh, but traffic stopped and everybody lived but one of the the problems with a, a wandering animal it is in fact that it puts them in danger we don't let our animals run around outside of fences or homes, depending on the type of animal, because it's dangerous for them, because they'll get killed, they'll get hurt, or whatever it might be. And the same is true with us. While we are wandering around apart from God, we put ourselves in danger. We put ourselves in danger of, of sinning, of hurting others, of hurting ourselves, of leaving a brokenness behind us, of leaving a, a, a wake of, of destruction and hurt and pain, and we ultimately run the risk of, of ending up in hell. God says that we were like sheep gone astray, wandering around. While God wanted to hold us close, we were just wandering around. Here's another danger. It puts us far away from God, the, the being that loves us, most. I'll go back to the dog illustration. Dogs, I think, realize ultimately uh, that their masters are the ones who are going to love them most. But uh, I grew up with Checkers, and Checkers liked me fine. I think he loved me, but different kind of dog. He was in it for himself, uh, really in it for himself. What have you done for me lately kind of dog. Growl at you if he came near him when he had something. He sounds horrible, but we liked him. Um, but then Roy, my dog who recently passed away, just the absolute opposite. Um, he loved me more than anything, anything. And, and I loved him almost more than anything. I have a wife, so I can't say more than anything, but some people would accuse me of having the priorities right. Uh, but there was this, this thing that would happen. And, and Roy knew. Roy, we were connected. We were bonded. He was a sick puppy. And so we were, it was different than, than I've ever experienced with another dog. And uh, 
And so Roy would never take his eyes off of me if I was around, like literally would not take his eyes off of me ever. And um, so I'd leave him outside of Starbucks and, and he, would, uh, he would just peer through the windows the whole time. People, almost every time he would be at Starbucks, I tied him up to a table. People would be like, that dog really loves you, you know? And he would just look at me. I mean, he's just looking the whole time. And, uh, and this one time, I think we were, had people over from the church. I don't remember exactly what it was, but somebody had gone out to their car. Roy had gone with them. Everybody had come back in. And the door had been shut behind Roy, and nobody noticed for quite a long time. And then finally, somebody looks out the window, and there's Roy just sitting at the door looking in. And there was a difference, because Checkers, he liked me fine, but Roy absolutely loved me. And he knew that wandering off was going to separate him from the one that he loved. And, the, and more importantly, I think, to Roy, because he's a big scaredy cat, the one who loved him the most. And when we wander from God... We may not think about this, but we, we go away from the being who loves us the most and who can take care of us the best. And Jesus saw that we had wandered away. There's one more thing that I think is uh, important for us to remember. Um, while wandering away leaves us in danger, it also leaves us hurt and broken. Uh, we, when we wander, if a kid wanders from their parent, then they inevitably end up falling into something and hurting themselves, whatever it might be. And, and sometimes when we wander from God, we, we hurt, and we hurt ourselves, and we hurt others. And this is the state. God in heaven, think about this with me, wants to hold us close to his heart. He wants to protect us. He wants to take care of us. He wants to comfort us. He, he wants to be there with us. And he looks down from heaven and he goes, man, they have wandered far away from me and they are in danger and they are not with the one that loves them and they are broken and they are hurting. I need to do something about it. But there was this other thing. Not only we as humans had, had we wandered off, we weren't just in some grassy field somewhere. We put ourselves in an incredible situation. The Bible refers to it as sin. We, when we wandered off from God, we sinned. We did wrong things. And because of that, and I don't want to take the metaphor too far, but, but in, because of that, we had put ourselves in a situation that was dangerous and deserved and resulted in, ultimately, if God did nothing about it, our death, our eternal death. Like sheep, you know, they wander off, they put themselves in a bad situation. And here was the decision that God had to make. God could either watch us die, suffer for eternity, or he could step out of heaven, be born in a fragile situation, live a life that knew suffering and pain and hurt, and then die instead of us. And he chose to die for you and I. We are the ones who went away. He was trying to hold us cl close. We wandered off. We put ourselves in the dangerous situation. But, but God said, I, I want to save you. I want to help you. I want to bring you back. I will give my life for you. John 10, 11, this is Jesus talking. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He saw us as sheep wandering off, doing our own thing, ultimately putting ourselves in a situation we deserve death, and he did something about it for us. John 10, 15, Jesus again, I lay down my life for the 
sheep. I was looking for an illustration for this, and I, I couldn't find a great illustration. The fact that Jesus would give himself up for us. It's really difficult to find a perfect illustration that the God of the universe would come into earth and then die for us. And uh, so uh, no illustration I, I, I found uh, was perfect, but, but one that I really liked that I think made a ton of sense is that of the Lion King. And uh, you, if you're my age, then the Lion King kind of hit when when you were a little bit older, not to watch it 30 times, you know, it was a pretty good movie, but I wasn't, I wasn't like a little kid anymore, and I was kind of in that age where it wasn't, you, you're not like a kid, but you're not old enough to be like, I don't care if it's cool, if Disney makes good movies, you know, that kind of stage in life, and so, so I honestly, before I, I found this illustration online, I didn't actually remember uh, these details, but, um, Simba, uh, you know Simba, he's the little lion in the story, the main character of the story. He's got kind of a wild spirit, right? And he doesn't do what he's supposed to do, and he doesn't, uh, he doesn't um, care to be obedient or to follow his handler's advice, and, uh, which was like a weird little animal, but he didn't care to follow his advice, and so he does his own thing. And one day, uh, doing his own thing puts him in a dangerous situation because there's a stampede. And the stampede is coming, and Simba's running and running, and running and running and running and running and running and he knows that he's going to die really that's us that's what God describes about us he had a great dad Mufasa's the dad na- dad's name who loved him who wanted the best for him who cared for him who wanted to hold him close to his heart but Simba had this free spirit where he wanted to do his own thing and he wanted to be free and he wanted to uh, be his own person and not listen to orders and all that and so he runs off and and he ends up in a very dangerous situation and in the movie if you remember this it's a horrible horrible scene all of a sudden Mufasa shows up Simba doesn't even know about it but he shows up and somehow distracts the stampede and the stampede chases him and Simba thinks he gets away on his own accord but Mufasa is running and running and running eventually the stampede stamp uh, stomps him and and he is about to die and then long story short he climbs up a mountain and his brother finishes the job and he dies. And it's this beautiful picture of somebody making a sacrifice that they didn't have to make. Simba knew the rules. Simba knew what he ought to do. Simba knew what his dad wanted him to do. Simba knew what he was supposed to do, but he did something else and he ended up in a situation where it was going to cost him his life. And his dad, without uh, any shouts of glory, without any statement, hey, I'm going to save your life now, without people even knowing, came and said, hey, I'm going to save you because I love you so much. And what this passage of scripture says, these three verses, is that God was in heaven, he looked down, he saw you like a sheep going your own way, putting yourself in a situation where you deserved and were going to die, not just once, but for eternity, whatever that means. And so instead of just watching you suffer and watching you die, he said, I, the good shepherd, will come down and die for you who are merely a sheep. It's ridiculously amazing grace. And that's what Isaiah wants you to know about Emmanuel. He came because he saw you needing to die, but he came knowing that he wanted to hold you close to his heart. And so he was willing to suffer and die a brutal and terrible, torturous death so that you might live instead of him. And Isaiah continues, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. 
By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he will be punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence nor was any deceit found in his mouth. You see the good shepherd said I will die like a sheep. Uses the metaphorical language of of a sacrifice in the Old Testament. And it says that he doesn't even open his mouth. You know why he didn't open his mouth? You know why that Jesus didn't complain even though he was unjustly arrested, beaten, and tortured, and killed? Do you know why he didn't complain? Because it wasn't an accident. Because it wasn't a mistake. Because he knew that those people had no power over him that he had not given to them. He was willingly deciding to die so that you, the sheep, didn't have to. The shepherd died so that you didn't have to. He didn't even complain about it. And trust me, in the Bible, there's great, wonderful, awesome figures who do plenty of complaining about their situations in life. Read the book of Jeremiah. He's doing a bunch of stuff for God. He's a hero of the Jewish faith, yet he complains about it the whole time. Read the story of Job, somebody that God loved tremendously and whom God uses tremendously in our lives today to help us deal with suffering. Complained the whole time. Look at the disciples. They never knew what was going on. They didn't like the plans. But Jesus doesn't utter a word in his own defense because he's choosing to die for you. And then there's this amazing connection. And and if you're not a believer, I I just want to just add this part in here because it's like so incredible that hundreds of years uh, before Jesus lives, when Isaiah is writing, that he could get these details right. We've already seen that that he got the scourging right, that Jesus would be whipped with a, a, a whip that is made out of of rock and metal and other pieces of things that they'd put in there to rip skin off a of back. And we already saw that, that Isaiah gets right the piercing, that, that Jesus would be crucified, even though crucifixion wasn't a main thing when Isaiah lived. But, but notice these like crazy little details uh, that from Jesus' life that he gets here. He gets uh, that Jesus was unjustly arrested and tried with false information. Oppression and judgment, Isaiah says, that translates something like unjust arrest. Isn't that crazy? I mean, hundreds of years before, he's like, God's going to come to earth and he's he's going to be unjustly arrested for you. It's crazy. And then Jesus was killed while people of his own generation uh, chanted for him to be crucified. And Isaiah says that nobody in his generation protested that he was killed. Nobody is there going, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This guy hasn't done anything wrong. He hasn't broken any rules. And you're giving him the worst kind of death and he hasn't done anything. Nobody protests. And Isaiah gets that right hundreds of years before Jesus lived. It said that Jesus would die with sinners. Isaiah says it like this, assigned a grave with the wicked. And we know that when Jesus was hung on a cross, he was hung next to other people. And two of those people are recorded for us in the Gospel of Luke. And one of them says, ha, 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 and he makes fun of Jesus. And the other one says, wait a minute, this guy hasn't done anything wrong. I have, and you have. He says, Jesus, remember me in paradise. Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus is hung next to criminals, and Isaiah gets that right. And then, and this is a crazy detail. It doesn't even make sense, I'm sure, for the first people reading Isaiah. Isaiah says that he will be buried with the rich. He'll be with the rich in his death. And we know from the gospel stories that after Jesus died, he was buried in the tomb of a guy named Joseph from Arimathea, a rich guy. I mean, how is it possible? 
How is it possible that a guy who didn't know what exactly he was looking for, he was just recording the words of God, could say that somebody would die with sinners, would die with thieves, would die with people who deserve to be punished and then get buried in a rich guy's tomb. It doesn't even make sense. And Isaiah gets this detail right. You wanna know why? Because God was saying, hey, by the way, here's the story, Isaiah. Someday I'm going to willingly come down to that earth, be with you, Emmanuel. My name will be Jesus and I will die because you deserved it. And there's this other part that he gets right. Jesus never sinned. But yet he didn't complain about dying because he loved you so much. And he continues in Isaiah 53, 10 through 12. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life in a death and he was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah began with resurrection. Then he talks about how brutal this person's death will be. And then he comes right back to it and says, even though he will be cut off and die, he will again see life. He rose again. I mean, that's a pretty incredible, bold statement to make, right? Hey, somebody's coming. They're going to die for your sins, and then they're going to get out of the grave. And even though, and the word is hacked, by the way, it says cut off, but it means more literally hacked. Even though he will be hacked to death, he will once again see the light of life. And we believe, and this is why we're Christians, that God came to earth. He was brutally tortured and beaten and all of the sins of earth were laid upon him as he was nailed to a cross. And then he was buried and he rose again on a day that we call Easter. And Isaiah says it all to us hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. And then he tells us this last part. He says that, that this death and resurrection will bring justification that's what we believe. We believe that if we place our faith in Jesus dying and rising again for sins and we declare him as our Lord and Savior, then we are justified in our sins, that we are forgiven for our sins, that our sins are paid for, that we are atoned for, even though we didn't do anything to deserve it. All we did was wander off from God who wanted to hold us close to his heart. But in Jesus' death, if we place our faith in it, we find justification for our sins. We are made right. It's as if our record is wiped clean. That's incredible. And then he says this other thing. He says that he'll have offspring. And the New Testament tells us that if we place our faith in Jesus, then we enter into the family of God. What an incredible thing. And especially for Isaiah, who's writing hundreds of years ago, who looks at the Jewish people and says, you're the family of God. But Isaiah's already told us that someday someone will come and if you're a Gentile, that's a non-Jewish person, then you can be brought into the family of God. And it took Jesus dying and rising again for us who are not Jewish people to be able to look at God and declare, you are my father, Abba Father, as Paul describes it in the book of Romans. Daddy. He even says that a portion of his plunder will be given to us. 
I quoted this song last week, but I want to do it again. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. We sing it. But do we really believe it? I mean, do we really grasp how incredible that is? That God would come from heaven to earth, be hacked off from life, rise again, and somehow, some way, we get to take part of his reward? We're co-heirs, as Paul describes it in the New Testament, with Christ. And you know what we did to deserve that? Nothing. We wandered off from a God who wanted to hold us close to his heart. That Hebrew word there for intercession at the, at the very end means something close to, um, to go all out in acting in behalf of another. He went all out so that we could be justified and we could be part of his family and so that we could have incredible riches. Riches now and peace, joy, love, forgiveness, hope, and peace forever when we have our eternal life in a glorious kingdom called heaven. 1 Peter 2, 22 through 25 says this, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins and his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray. But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus went all out for you. And this morning is the morning to return to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. And for some of you, that means becoming a Christian. You're just wandering around, putting yourself in danger, hurting, broken, feeling, even though you would never declare this, feeling far from the one who loves you and cares for you the most. That's God. And some of you will spend your whole lives, if you don't come to Jesus, searching for that person who will make you feel comforted and make you feel forgiven and make you feel healed. And you go from person to person to person or drug to drug to drug or item to item to item just trying to find the satisfaction that only, only returning to the shepherd and overseer of your soul can give you. And I just want to say this, that God came from heaven to earth to be hacked off from life and he rose again for your sins because you had wandered off and you had put yourself in danger. And all you have to do to return to the overseer and shepherd of your soul is place your faith in that wonderful gift and declare Jesus as both your Savior and your Lord. If you'll do that, he'll just take you right back in. Right back in. But there's others of us who are Christians and have been Christians. And it's become dry, it's become stale, it's become boring. When we sing, we barely mean it. When we sing, it's either because we're supposed to or because, uh, because we're used to it. When we pray, it's because we ought to and not because we really love Jesus and we don't even pray. Perhaps when we read the Bible, it's because we have to and not because we're, we're drawing closer to the one who wants to hold us close. And I just want to put this out there. We ought to be passionate followers of Jesus. Because he was 
pierced and crushed and wounded and tortured and suffered and died for us. He went all out giving everything for our sins so that we might be held close to him. So stop wandering. Stop having your attention everywhere else and be like my dog, (laughs) just looking directly at God going, you're the one who loves me most. And I love you more than anything else. Not because, it's not because I'm special that you did this. It's not because I deserved for God to do anything. It's because you willingly chose to be hacked off from life for me. What you read about in Isaiah 53, 1 through 11, is what we call amazing grace. It's the most incredible grace that there is. And when you read it and when you think about it and when you focus on the good shepherd laying his life down for the sheep, it can't help, it can't help but come right back to the overseer and shepherd of your souls and say, hold me close because there is no greater love than this. Now let me pray for you. Lord, this is beautiful. This is incredible. This is... like the best passage of scripture in the Bible, God. Um, I pray this morning that, um, that, that my sermon won't get in the way of it. And, and God, I pray that you take all that I said this morning and, and that you would uh, let the good stuff, the stuff that's from you just sink deep into our hearts. Let everything else just go to the wayside, Lord. You know, Lord, um, that preaching this passage is more than most, it's like one where where I just really don't want to mess it up. I hope I didn't mess it up. And, and so what I pray right now, God, apart from anything I even said this morning, is that your Holy Spirit would descend upon us and we would be touched once more, or maybe for the first time, God, by the incredible, ridiculously amazing grace that you bestowed upon us when you, the shepherd, died as a sheep because we had wandered from you. I pray, Lord, that we would be struck by the magnitude of this passage, that we would be struck by how incredible of a sacrifice you made for us. And like God, when people spend the night at your house and they don't have to, or food shows up for your new roommate, God, when somebody goes out and buys you a coat, I pray that we, God, would never take for granted. We would never forget. We would never stop thinking about and remembering, God, what an incredible sacrifice you made for us because it is far beyond anything we know on this earth. Jesus, thank you for looking down here, seeing how lost and vulnerable and in danger hurt we were and then coming down to die so that we might have forgiveness and grace and mercy and hope and peace and be brought back close to you into your family God um, provided with wonderful riches and justified God before you I pray these things in your name amen